Genesis chapter 36. We're going to look this this evening at the uh, genealogy of Esau and explore the possibilities of getting blood from a stone. (laughs) Excuse me, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 36. Let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus this evening, Lord. We want to offer our thanks to you and our gratitude, Lord, for allowing us to participate with your people, Lord, these people that you love so much and, Father, have anointed and called and made part of your family. And, Lord, it's our prayer, Father, that we would operate as part of your family as well this evening, Lord, each one of us. Father, that you would open our understanding, Lord, to draw near to you, to receive instruction and encouragement. And, Father, that we would hear your voice, Lord. And, Father, we would receive your exhortation toward us, Lord, that we would know, Father, that you are speaking to us individually. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that the desire of our hearts, Lord, to hold the word of God in high esteem, Lord, that you might equip us and enable us, Lord, to speak the words of truth to so many people, Lord, who need your help. Father, direct and guide us by your spirit. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit. And Father, Lord, as we gather in your name tonight, bless us this evening. Lift up the ladies, the youth group, the, the kids who are being ministered to, Lord. Bless us as your children. And we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a cell phone, take a minute and make it quiet, please, if you haven't done that. Um, Genesis chapter 36, the genealogy of Esau. The Bible, although it, it kind of appears to be one book, it's really not. The Bible is 66 separate and distinct books that primarily tell one single story. And that is the story of the fall and the redemption of mankind. Which means that the Bible is a collection of books about God and about his connection, or the absence of a connection, with men. In the book of Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, it says, Whatever things were written before, referring specifically to the Old Testament, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scripture, might have Hope. All scripture has the promise of providing this hope. Some scriptures require a little bit more patience than others. Um, This chapter is the genealogy of the life of Isaac's oldest son, oldest by, I don't know, a minute or two. He's a twin, so not too much older. His oldest son, Esau. Why do we have genealogies in the scripture? Why are they here? The lists of these people who were descended from uh, particular families and the list of everybody who's involved. And the reason is because God wants us to learn some very important things. People are important to God. If you live in this culture long enough, you start to lose that. The reality that people 
people are important to God. When I say people are important to God, I mean every person is important to God. Every person. What is more important than a person? I want you to think about that. What makes something valuable in an eternal sense? The fact that it cannot be created. If God can create something, he can make it all day long. He can create it from nothing. And what is there that God can't create or that cannot be created? And the answer to that is God. God cannot be created. And what was the purchase price for the lives of the people in the human race? What did God exchange? The life of his son. As it says in uh, the book of Acts, chapter uh, 20, verse 28, it says that God has called us to care for his people whom he purchased with his own blood. God set a precedent of the value of a human. He purchased the human race with his blood. Human beings are valuable, eternally valuable. The people in this chapter are not from a godly family, of what we would consider necessarily a godly family, which is a very big deal especially in the Old Testament and the Jewish culture. What God is telling us is that people are important, saved, unsaved, those who are culturally divorced from the truth are important because we are all at some point, we have all at some point been divorced from the truth. People are important to God. People are important to me because I follow him. And so I have to encourage myself daily that people are important to God. They need to be important to me. Families are important. Now, the people in this particular genealogy do not descend from what we would call, again, a godly heritage. Their great-grandfather was a very godly man, the father of the faith, Abraham. Their grandfather, Isaac, a very godly man, went around creating altars, offering sacrifice to God, sincerely in his heart toward the Lord. His uncle, that amazing man, Jacob. Israel, the namesake of the nation that God chose. But Esau, not so much. We have a pretty solid scriptural evidence that Esau was operating outside of God's promise, which is a very, very bad thing. Something we never want to do. Never want to see ourselves is operating outside of the promise of God. We will see a bit more of that in the scripture, what the scripture has to say about him. What about all these other people who are listed in this genealogy? In reality, we don't know. We don't know. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, speaking about the Lord, Lord desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that all, all means all, that's all, all means. God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, to be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any, zero, 
should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason we have genealogies in Scripture is because the Lord wants to illustrate to us that history is important. The historical importance of Esau's family, not only in the past, but in Israel's future yet to come beyond the book of Genesis. You can't know where you've been without knowing. I'm sorry, wait, I did that wrong. You can't know where you are unless you know where you've been. You really cannot. Complex interaction of Israel with Edom from the Exodus all the way into the New Testament. Even though the nation of Edom was essentially destroyed by the Babylonians in the, uh, the 6th century, around the beginning of the, the 7th century B.C., many of their descendants continued to live in the area southeast of Judah, identified as Idumeans, the family of Herod the Great, were Idumeans. Herod the Great was an Idumean. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of of Edom, of uh, Esau, actually. The great gripe against them by the Jewish people at the time, and the way that uh, Herod and his family were able to maintain power was by alliance with the Romans and intermarriage with the descendants of the Maccabees, the Hasmonean uh, rulers, first and second Maccabees from the Apocrypha. Good historical books give you a rundown on what happens with the rebellion against the Seleucids at the time. And Herod the Great intermarried with them. They were Jewish heroes, and he held power. The Lord wants us to learn from genealogies that details are important. Consider the diverse, just as an example of how details are important, the diverse nature of the heritage of Jesus. Who does Jesus have in his family? Tamar, a Canaanite woman, daughter-in-law of Judah, uh, a Canaanite woman of Jericho, Rehob, who was a harlot, innkeeper, um, a Moabite, Ruth, also. The genealogy of the Messiah would be immensely important to any religious Jew. The family of the Messiah Could there be any more important family line in history? No. And there's no reason to think that Jesus is related to uh, Esau. or I mean, other than he's an uncle, way back there. But this illustrates the importance of detail in the scripture. God uses the details in powerful ways. The fact that Jesus is related, not just related, but these three non-Jewish women are his grandmothers. They're not his aunts. They're his grandmothers, directly in the line of the Messiah. This would have been a tremendous stumbling block to the religious leadership of the Jews had they believed that Jesus was the Messiah in the first century. Now, as to this genealogy, it enters into our narrative in Genesis at the point of the death of Isaac, the end of chapter 35. And it really is, for the most part, this whole chapter is a punctuation to the life of Esau, to his character. Even though his family and the nation that he becomes is always in the background in the scripture, playing some more or some less significant role from time to time, he will be pretty much invisible for the rest of the book of Genesis. You will not hear of Esau again from this point forward. There are a few things about it, about this chapter, that are very, very interesting. 
In verses 1 through 3, we have the listing of the wives of Esau. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebajoth. Esau means hairy, which he was. He was a hairy guy. He had hair all over him. Poor brother had to strap goat skins onto his arms to make it seem like he was his brother. He had to be one hairy guy, you know. Where's Rico? No, I mean, yeah, we ought to call Rico Esau. But I don't think even Rico can compete with having a goat skin strapped here. It's ridiculous, insane, very heavy. Maybe, maybe double Y chromosome or something, you know. I'm thinking, sums up with Esau. And then, of course, Edom means red. So maybe he was red in appearance as well. It's also very interesting because, you know, the, the nation where, where Edom eventually winds up, we'll get into this as we go through the chapter, is in Lebanon. Actually, it's in Jordan. It's the area of Mount Seir and where we have Petra. Have you ever seen pictures of Petra? All of the, the caves and the stone and all the carved work there. Anybody ever been there? You been there, John? No, no. Petra, no. It's in Jordan. And a pretty cool place, though. But you notice the color of all the stone? It's all red. It's kind of interesting that they would... It's Edom. That's where it is. Red. <laughs> interesting stuff. Esau is Edom in verse 1. We got that out of the way. The first accounting of Esau's, Esau's wives back in chapter 26... Chapter 26, verse 34, Esau was 40 years old when he took wives. Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite. Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, some people will accuse Jacob of being a mama's boy. And it's hard to say. We know his mom liked him a lot and liked him better than Esau. Uh, He doesn't get married for another 30 years after Esau gets married. And this is uh, an important Detail, if you're really looking at the narrative as a whole, because by the time Jacob returns back from Syria with his family, his oldest son, Reuben, is pretty much an adult. But Esau has kids that are 30 years older than any of his kids. Esau's got a whole tribe of grandchildren and probably great-grandchildren running around out there. At the time, the Jacob's sons, the 12 patriarchs of Israel, are just barely becoming grown men. So there's a a huge gap in between the birth of all these children. The thing here that's really not up for discussion is the fact the names and the families of Esau's wives do not match up. Again, so I, I mentioned to you in 26... Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, Basimoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Again, in chapter 8, he marries again. And it seems like he's doing it in response to the displeasure of his parents with his wives. They didn't like his Canaanite wives. They were, what does it say in 2635? They were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So he tries to marry a wife that's closer to their family. So Genesis 28, verse 6. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram in Syria to take himself a wife from there that as he blessed him, he gave him charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. 
and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. And so Esau went to, notice he didn't care too much what his mom thought. Anyway, uh, Esau went to Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. So, let me give it to you in a nutshell, okay? In chapter, in, in chapter 26, he marries Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, Basimoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, two Canaanites, Hittites. 28, marries Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, the sister of Nebajoth. But in 36, who's he married to? I know it's a little complicated, I'm sorry, but hang in here with me. In 36, he marries Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anath, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, Basimoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebajoth. So this is a mess. Because none of these names match up. And none of the families match. Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, isn't really close to any of the other names. Basimoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, could be a longer version of Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite in 36, except that we have another Basimoth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebajoth, in 36. So, Judith shows up in 26 and nowhere else. Aholibamah shows up in 36 and nowhere else. Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, shows up in 28 and nowhere else. Ada shows up in 36 and nowhere else. The only common name in all of them is Basimoth. She's in 36 and she's got a different set of parents in the other list. Okay, so what are our options here? How are we supposed to look at this thing? <coughs> Excuse me. Obviously, there are some substantial list in uh, transcribing the, the, the whole thing. And are these, we basically we have three, four options. I'll give you four options. There are only three, but the fourth one is a combination of the three, okay? So these are the, could be what's going on, all right? Copyist error, which is a problem in the Scripture, is an issue in the Scripture. Scripture's handed down this piece of, of, of text is somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,500 years old, guys. That's a long time to pass down information. A lot of scholars believe that it was passed down verbally for a couple of thousand years, which is, I believe, not true. I believe these things were written out specifically. And there are a lot of reasons for that. If you're interested, I'll go over it with you later. But... The bottom line is, there is copyist error in the problem. When we translate from one language to another, we lose stuff. There are things that get lost and misplaced. It does happen. Because we believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible in the original autographs. As God filled the people who wrote it down, what they wrote down, the transcribed versions passed down are subject to human error. And so copyist error is a thing that does happen in the Scripture. You, me and you, we're confident that the Holy Spirit of God can work in our brains to get us past that to the point that we're understanding what the, God, what the Lord wants us to understand. And that's the key for us. We're not unsettled by this. But copyist error is a real deal. Secondly, Esau could have had a larger group of wives with some excluded in the 36th list it has been 20 years since he married the last woman back in chapter 28. So he could have, you know, double Y chromosome. He could have had a whole bunch more wives. 
And we could just have the listing of some of those. Okay, third option. Different names and family names for the same women. Some of these Hivite, Hittite, Horite, the, the nationalities, some of those are overlapping. In addition to that, the names of people definitely could have been shortened. Some of the women that Esau married had Canaanite names that we don't even have translations for. And they could have been changed into a Hebrew name and handed over to us like that. Okay, fourth, fourth possibility, it could have been a combination of two or all three of those problems showing up in the different listings of this thing that create the issue that we're dealing with. Bottom line, we are not going to know exactly what the problem is to these three lists of the wives of Esau. We are not going to know exactly what it is. But believe it or not, there really is a pretty powerful upside to this whole thing. And I'm going to share with you what it is. When somebody who would have to be a pretty knowledgeable Bible critic to come to you with this issue and say, you know, what's up with your Bible here, huh? You know, what do you, do you believe the Bible's all inspired? How come this doesn't make any sense here? They're going to have to do some serious research and study to be able to come up with that, okay? But when a Bible critic comes to you and wants to point out to you that this, this book that you believe to be inerrant and infallible in the original autographs, which is 3,500 to 4,000 years old, I mean, how easy would it have been? How easy would it have been through the 3,500 years for the translators and copyists of the Old Testament to have fixed this so that the list matched perfectly? Would that have been a hard thing for them to do? Me and you can sit down with a piece of paper, go downstairs and do it right now. We can make all three of these lists the same and just hand them over. <clears throat> it's a pretty easy thing. A little collusion, some bending of the truth. I mean, it's Esau. He's not even really Jewish. He's not in the line of the Messiah. He's not really important. How important is it anyway? Well, apparently, it's very important. Because for nigh unto 4,000 years, men have been faithfully copying these either mistakes or misunderstandings without exception. And what does that tell you about the people who have been copying this and handing it down to the next generation? They believe that it is the word of God. They believe without contradiction. They may not understand what the problem is, but they're going to hand it down 110% perfectly faithfully. That tells me that I'm looking back at 150, 200 generations of men who put their life on the line to put this into my hands without any deviation whatsoever. It speaks to the integrity of men who have given their lives in many places to hand the scripture over to me without any changes whatsoever. Confident in God that whatever the real issue is, he'll make it plain. He will make it plain. He'll sort it out. It's not my job to understand the issue here. It's my job to be confident in the Lord that he's able to make it plain. We may not fully understand what the answer is to this issue, but we do know that, that men that translated and copied the book were absolutely convinced that it is the perfect and inspired word of God because they were not going to mess with it in any way. And that is a powerful testimony. So on the one hand, we have questions about Esau's wives and their families. On the other hand, we have absolute confidence in those who've gone before us 
and in their conviction concerning God's word. So if 4,000 years of men before me were convinced of the inspiration and infallibility of the scripture, that they treated it in the very highest possible regard, what should my view of scripture be? How highly should I regard the word of God? Those people all lived a long time ago. And of course, you know, we're much smarter than they were. People believe that, folks. People believe that we are much... Because we walk around, we're carrying computers in our pockets. People think that we are much smarter than people were. Have you ever heard of, uh, of uh, Erosthenes? Erosthenes, Greek guy, lived in Alexandria. Ever hear of him? Anybody ever hear of that guy? Erosthenes. No? You know, he's not a big... He's not a... a, a He's not a really well-known Greek scholar kind of guy. Just he was, Actually, they, the, his contemporaries used to call him Beta because he was like, he wasn't Alpha. He was like, he was a second degree. He wasn't as smart as some of the guys. He was just kind of average. Erosthenes. Not the most famous, the most notable of the... Lived in the third century B.C., accurately calculated the circumference of the planet by measuring the shadows inside of wells. Yeah, we're much smarter than these guys. (laughs) Where would you get an idea like that? Hey, I'll bet it, the shadows in wells, I could feel... This guy's from another planet! It's insane! Yeah, we're going to go out and build the pyramids without iron tools. In your dreams, maybe. A high view of Scripture, a high view of Scripture is essential to everything God wants to do in your life and even after your life. In verses 4 through 8, we have a list of the patriarchs of Edom. Now, Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimoth bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore. Jewish, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the persons of his household, his cattle, all his animals and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan. And he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob, For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. By the time time we get to verse 5, Esau has five sons. No telling how many daughters. And his kids are likely, again, much, much older than Jacob's. Many of them probably married with children of their own. Jacob returns to the land of Canaan. And as soon as he returns, his father dies. As he arrives there in chapter 35, it becomes obvious that the local area is not going to be large enough to sustain the numbers of livestock that they both own. Conventional wisdom. Okay, look it up in the Internet. Conventional wisdom says, for 100 cows, you need 500 acres of pasture land. Now, that, that's, that is five acres of pasture land per cow, all right? 
These guys have thousands upon thousands of animals. I don't know how many cows they have, but they've got goats. They've got sheep. They've got camels. They've probably got horses. They've got thousands upon thousands of animals, all right? And so it is absolutely impossible for them to dwell in the locale where they are and to be able to feed these animals as they need to. Esau decides to relocate to a better situation. And a little bit later in the chapter, we'll notice that there are some other mitigating circumstances and why he goes where he goes. Uh, we see the hand of the Lord in this as well because of the promise. The promise. That's the one that you partake in. The promise. Genesis thirty-five twelve. back in the last chapter. The, the land which God speaks to, to, uh, East, to uh, Jacob. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And to your descendants after you, I give this land. Land belongs to Israel. Esau is not a part of this promise. Not that he could not have been or was forcibly removed. God does not forcibly remove people from a connection to him and his purpose in their life, not often under difficult circumstances regardless. What seems to happen with people, folks, is that the choices of men, as they go about the day-to-day function of their lives, their work and their activity, gradually it draws a person away from the mind of Christ and the understanding of what that means in practical terms. They are drawn away. Uh, your life is about worship. It's what you do. From the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, you are in the process of conducting yourself with a mindful perspective that God is watching you. And as long as you're doing that, whether you're tying your shoes or driving the car, chewing somebody out at work or dealing with a difficult circumstance, talking to the IRS on the phone, whatever it is, you are involved in worship because you are conducting yourself cognizant of the mind of Christ that you need to have in your life. What you do, what you say, what you think, who you are. It's all about you being connected. Like it says in Colossians 3, 1, be mindful of the things above, not the things of the earth, because when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's the bottom line. That's who we are. Mindful of the things above. Now, people are drawn away from the Lord. For instance, they lose the high view of Scripture. The Bible is a good book, sure. A lot of benefits, absolutely necessary for a person's life. People lose that sense. They no longer see the scripture as being absolutely necessary to guide and direct lives. Is the Bible absolutely necessary for your life? Listen to what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 32:46. He said to them, set your hearts on the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land, which you cross over the Jordan to possess. That's what Moses thought. You got to make up your mind. How important is the scripture to you? Second Corinthians 6.12 says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. And this is what happens to people. The, the affections that they hold toward the things of this world erode the substance of who Christ is in their life. And it is so gradual. 
It's so gradual as to be absolutely unnoticeable by us. Esau is living as a natural man. We can see nothing in the scripture that identifies him as a person that is led or directed by an awareness or a concern for God's purpose in his life. Except as the outcome of a situation leaves him unjustly with the short end of the stick, he is then very disturbed by that, intending some serious self-examination and warning the writer of the Hebrews makes a reference to Esau, his losing of his father's blessing, blessing in Hebrews twelve seventeen. You know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So even though Esau was very sorry for the loss of the blessing, the blessing that he believed came from God through his father, that sorrow didn't have the effect upon him that would draw him to the truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, about verses 9 and 10, it talks about the way that sorrow works in the hearts of men. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, or not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrow in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance. That's not what Esau had. Leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world. That's what Esau had. Produces death. Esau seems to have had the market cornered on this particular kind of sorrow. The sorrow of the world. one particular day in his life where he had an opportunity to reach out and seek the promise of God, whether he knew it or not. You know, people don't realize that they are alienating themselves from the Lord by the things that they do. They really don't. Because an important part of this promise of which we are partakers could be inherited. The land. The land is... Very, very important in the Old Testament, especially into the nation of Israel. The land which he is leaving behind as he relocates himself and his family to Mount Seir. He may not have realized it at this time, but that decision, even though Jacob owned almost nothing in Canaan at this time, that decision for Esau would forever affect his association of his family with the people of God. It's interesting that in Hebrews 12, Esau is called, in 12.16, Hebrews says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, certainly in 12.16 of Hebrews, he's called profane. And fornicator may be a reference to him, maybe not. It doesn't have to be a reference to him, but it could be. What is a fornicator, anyway? The word fornicator, as you probably know, is not simply a reference to sex outside of marriage. It's not. That, that fits the bill. That's definitely somebody who is sexually involved outside of marriage is a fornicator. But the word honestly is much, much broader than that. Much, much broader. And it really refers to any kind, any flavor 
of sexual immorality identifies a person as a fornicator. Okay? No matter what, what, what sort it might be, an involvement in sexual immorality qualifies to this particular definition. Profane, on the other hand, a person that takes something that is holy and uses it for a purpose that is unbefitting its intention, something that is holy like the life of a human being and turns it into a nightmare. That's profanity. Somebody who takes a word and uses it in a way in which it is obscene, definitely profanity. Anything that you, to take something that's beautiful that God created and to abuse it is profane. And what did Esau do that was profane? He disrespected the gift of the firstborn that belonged to him and he sold it to his brother for a pot of soup. Profane. He profaned, though he did not regard highly the truth of God. He did not regard it. The Holy Spirit here in Hebrews chapter 12 gives us some powerful commentary on Esau and maybe some insight into the issues of his future generations and the judgment of God towards him. Generations of Esau, verses 9 through 14. This is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, <coughs> excuse me, in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's son, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Ruel, the son of Basimoth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Ruel, Naath, Zerah, Shammah, Misah. These were the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau Jeush, Jalim, and Korah. So these are the subsequent births, grandchildren that were born in Mount Seir. By the time Esau and the family move off to Mount Seir, Jacob and Esau and Jacob both are pretty much done with childbearing. They're somewhere from 95 to 100 years old right here, okay? And uh, in verse 10, we have the recounting of the first two children. Esau's firstborn was Eliphaz. He had five sons. In verse 12, he did have a son by a concubine, somewhat lesser stature, somewhat down in, in the pecking order from the other children. But this child is very significant. Verse 12, now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz. Esau's son, she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. And these were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. Or the grandsons of Esau's wife, Ada. Either way, Amalek is to be, starting with the treachery and the exodus, one of the great adversaries to the nation of Israel throughout the years. In 1 Samuel 15, 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out of Egypt. Now go, this is actually the prophet Samuel speaking to Saul, King Saul. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, infant, nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pretty thorough. Kill them all. Anything that's there, kill them. You look at the decisions that people make, okay? 
And as we read the scripture, we have an advantage of really seeing the bird's eye view, seeing many generations and the consequence of people's decisions, sometimes in the same paragraph with the same decision, which amplifies the impact. We, we really get it. We see, how, oh, man, he should have made that decision. Look, over here, two verses later, bam, it all comes home. You don't get to see that in the people, in the lives of real people. You really don't. You don't get to see somebody decides, yeah, you know, this church, I don't know, I don't know, I'm going to go to some other church. And then, you know, they just start staying home watching football on Sundays, you know. And pretty soon they're not going to church, you know. And Well, great, you know, Christians, you don't have to go to church. I have a relationship with God, personal relationship. I read the Bible, I pray. I know Christians, I have family, I have friends who are Christians, you know. And when they get together, we have church. I don't have to go to some building to do this, you know. I don't have to have a paper to get married either. And, uh, you know, on and on and on and on. And seriously, though, the progression is very subtle. It's very subtle. And it's, and it's very powerful it works it moves in our lives again it doesn't work that we make a decision it could take years to see the consequences it all comes to pass just the same we just don't always connect the dots the way that we should we don't see it in advance we don't see it coming as esau makes this move off to mount seir the perspective is okay well you know maybe this is not god's best but seriously how bad could it be really really how bad could it be just like his uncle Lot, just exactly like his uncle Lot, who moved off the area toward Sodom and pinched his, pitched his tent toward the city of Sodom for very similar reasons, as we recall back in Genesis chapter 13. Same deal. Do you think Esau never heard of that? Do you think nobody ever told him about Lot? Did he never heard the, the account of what took place? Bad decisions have a way of multiplying consequence in the passage of time. In these families, there is a heritage of ungodliness, and it has to start somewhere, doesn't it? Here in this family, it starts with Esau. And when you move yourself away from the Lord, you move your family away from the Lord, it's really a move of the heart and soul. And in this instance, the physical location is important because of the promise of God to Abraham and to Isaac. In reality, we're seeing the outward expression of, of a change in Esau that took place a long time ago. On the surface, it may seem insignificant. Compromise always does. It's not insignificant. Compromise with hell is a bargain for your own death and the death of everything good and honest and clean and true. In this family... There are going to be drunks and pedophiles, murderers and cheats, liars. You get every kind of debauchery and disease known to man propagated through the family line, inflicted upon the lives of what could have been healthy, normal children turned into the children of death by, a, by the culture, a culture that is unfortunately very much, not too much different from our own culture today. Romans chapter 9 talks about Esau. And Romans 9 is really the anchor for Calvinism in the New Testament. But in, in Romans 9, here he's, he's talking about the expression of God's favor in advance of godly or ungodly actions on the part of his people. How God's favor is not necessarily predicated upon the actions of the person, but God's choice. Romans 9 verse 10, not 10.9, but 9.10, says... Not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, 
for the children not being born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to choosing or election might stand not of works but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Now notice that the, the overriding question here that the Apostle Paul is trying to point people to is, is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unrighteous? And the answer is no. That really is a major point of what the Apostle Paul is going for here. God does not work unrighteously. To illustrate the point, we look back at the verse that Paul uses from the Old Testament, and the Apostle Paul is quoting from Malachi chapter 1. Malachi 1 says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved. But Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So we see in the context from Malachi that Esau is not as a person, but the nation of his descendants. God's talking about the nation of the people. This verse is not dealing with the personal salvation being predestined in the same sense as we understand it. But God's point of view towards the generation of people who have rejected him and rejected his word. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts 10.34 at the home of Cornelius. Peter opened his mouth and he said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Peter's having this amazing epiphany, huge light bulb going off over his head. I wonder what they would have thought of that. You know, what is that thing? Anyway, you know, it's just amazing to him. He's realizing God loves Gentiles. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? God loves Gentiles. The whole world is crazy. And I mean, this is really what he's coming to. But the things he says are almost kind of contradictory. He says, in truth, I perceive God shows no partiality. Really? God didn't like David better than some other people? See, I kind of get the impression God liked David better than some other people. Like, I kind of get the impression that in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So God has allowed me to have a free will, to decide whether I want to serve him, to decide whether I want to worship him. And then my relationship with God is going to be affected by the decisions that I make. It's pretty plain. It's not rocket science. Example in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 5, verse 9, Moses writes, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and upon their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Who does God visit in this judgment upon? People who hate him. Third and fourth generation. People who hate God. Third generation doesn't hate God? No judgment. They don't get judged. God is not judging people by their family, but he is judging the family of Esau as individuals that have rejected the truth. Isaiah 34, verse 5 says, The Lord says, My sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down from Edom, on Edom, and the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. 
made overflowing with fatness, the blood of the lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Basra is the capital of Edom, actually. And a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall come down with them, and the young bulls and the mighty bulls, and the land shall be soaked with blood, and the dust saturated with fatness. For it is a day of the Lord's vengeance in the year of recompense of Zion. The judgment that God brought upon the nation of Edom, again, it took place, at least the end of the judgment took place, by the Babylonians in about 587 BC. By the time they relocated to Mount Seir, many of the sons of Esau were already prominent men or chiefs over their household. And we have a listing here, verses 15 to 19, of the chiefs of Edom. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, were Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenez, Chief Korah, Chief Gatan, Chief Amalek, these were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were sons of Ada. They were the sons of Rule, Esau's son, Chief Nehath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, and Chief Mizah. These, who were, these were the chiefs of Rule in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, Chief Jewish, Chief Jelam, Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholibama, Esau's wife, and the daughter of Anna. And they were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were the chiefs. Now, the re- he's restating just the list of the kids, lists of his sons who are prominent people. But the idea here is that by the time they're making this move to Seir, these guys have huge families, and they have possessions of their own. The word for chief can also be interpreted overseer of a thousand. So these guys have huge households of their own. In verse 15, And earlier in verse 11, we have the name of Esau's firstborn son, Eliphaz. And one of his sons is named Timon. And this really provides an association for the book of Job. Job 2.11, when Job's three friends heard of all of his adversity, they had come upon him. Each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite. See, now that's right out of this, this guy whoever he was, no reason to believe that Eliphaz, uh, Esau's firstborn son, was actually the guy who went and visited Job. Although it's possible, it is theoretically, we don't know for sure, no reason in the scripture to think so, but whoever he was, he's likely descended from Esau's firstborn son, and he lives in Timon, which one of Eliphaz's children was named that. So he's coming right out of Mount Seir to go and visit with Job whoever Job is. Now, certainly not the same guy, but from the same family, a good guess. Commentators like to associate uh, these names with a possible location for Job. We don't really know where the book of Job took place, but it's possible. Uh, There are two Korahs listed in this group. One in verse 16, the son of Eliphaz, a grandson of Esau. One in verse 18, the son of Esau's wife, Aholabama. So one's One of the Korahs is his son. The other one's a a grandson. A couple of interesting things about these verses. One of these Korahs, the grandson, is not listed in the early chapter, verses 11 or 12. He is listed here, indicating that he's not a prominent, and probably he's Eliphaz's son-in-law, married to one of Eliphaz's daughter. At least that's a possible explanation for why he doesn't show up in verse 11. We have the second mention of Amalek here called Chief Amalek in verse 16. Um, In verse 18, we have Aholabama uh, called the daughter of Anath in verse 14. Uh, These were the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anath. 
the daughter of Zebion. She bore to Esau, Jewish, Jalim, and Korah. Now, the family of Aholabama, this woman who is married to Esau, is going to become really significant here. We understand a little more about why Esau is making the move to Mount Seir. Look at the family of Seir in verses 20 to 30, okay? These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. Now, this is, okay, as I read through this list of names here, guys, these people are before, they are residents in the land of Seir, before Esau and his family make the trip over there. Okay, so we're going way back in their family line, people who lived in Mount Seir. Um, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anath, Dishan, Izar, Dishan, or Dishan, Izar, and Dishan. I don't know. I can't differentiate between those two. Sorry. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori, Himam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Mahanabah, Ebal, Shepo, and Onam. These were the sons of Zibion, both Ayath or Ajath and Anna. This was the Anna who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys with his father Zibion. Okay, now this verse 24, well, we'll get back to that. These were the children of Anna, Disha and Aholibama, the daughter of Anna. Okay, these were the sons of Disha, Himdan, Eshaban, Itharan, and Cherian. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, Akan. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to their chiefs in the lands of Seir. Okay, now, um, verse 24, there's just a little illustration there of this particular person, Anna. Um, these were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Anna. This is Anna who found the water in the wilderness. Now, I mean, just to give you a little bit of a, an insight into the difficulty of translating this stuff. Um, the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, is translated 200 years before Jesus by the Alexandrian uh, scholars. I, uh, they translated that to say that this guy Anna discovered hot springs. Okay, and it seems to be springs. The Latin Vulgate says that he discovered donkeys, you know, which and what, what happens is it's transposition of a couple of letters in the between the springs and donkeys, you know, and this is a thing that's 3,500 years this is a really old piece of literature. Is it life and death? No, we don't care about the donkeys or the springs. It really doesn't matter to us. But what it is, is it's a little, it's just a, um, uh, a picture into the life of the individual of what actually took place. To the people who were there, they'd go, oh yeah, that Anna, I know that. Yeah, the guy who found the springs, yeah. Or the donkeys, the springs are donkeys. Anyway, there are a lot of names here, okay? And the order and the repetition don't make it any easier to keep it straight. The, there are two guys here named Anna. One in verse 20, the son of Seir, all right? And the second one is in verse 24, the son of Zibion grandson to Seir, okay? This guy, the grandson to Seir, the son of Zibion, is the father of Esau's wife, Aholibama. Okay? So Esau married this woman who is related to the, the substantially important families of Mount Seir while he's still in Canaan. 
before he moved, all right? These were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anath, the daughter of Zibion. She bore Esau. She gives families. What do we care? What do we care, okay? Well, this is why we care. It indicates that the family of Esau and the Horites in Seir were in the process of intermarrying before or at the same time that they were moving into that area. Did this influence their decision? In some way, absolutely. They had people there. They were going there because they had people there. One of the reasons he's going. Decisions don't come from a vacuum, do they? People decide to take a job or make a move or go somewhere or change their life for no reason. There's a reason. Well, what is the reason? What's the foundation of the reason? What's the purpose of it? Where's it coming from? Is it my flesh? You know, am I going to buy this car because I, I, it appeals to my flesh? Or am I going to buy this car because God wants me to buy a car? And, or do I know the difference? Am I able to discern the distinction? Am I going to take this? I've got a job offer. I've got a good job. I'm doing fine. Somebody's offered me a better job with more money to work over here. Do I take that job? Do I stay where I'm at? How do I determine what the Lord wants me to do in that circumstance? I better be talking to the Lord. I better be in communication. I better be mindful of his spirit at work inside of me to guide me and direct me so that I can understand, engage, and, and be guided by the spirit of God, by the uh, confirmation that he provides. Do you ever be wondering about a situation in your life? You're thinking about something like, oh, man, what am I going to do? I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to do this. You know? And somebody just kind of walk up to you out of the blue and say, you know, that's the weirdest thing. I've been thinking about paying this bill in my life. You know, I've got to pay it. You know, and I'm thinking, Lord, what should I do here? And the Lord just totally spoke to me. And they share with you a situation that just nails you between the eyes. And you just sit there like with your mouth open. You know, you don't want to say anything to them. Because God just spoke to you so powerfly through them, you know? And you walk away from that and you go, you know, and, and if you're really in the flesh, you go, nah, I wasn't the Lord. <laughs> but it was. God is trying to get your attention. God will do that with unbelievers sometimes, you know? And he'll use unbelievers to share with you, provide confirmation. You pick up the scripture and just start reading. It'll be like, whoa, amazing, amazing. And it, all you got to be is open. Put yourself out there. Ask for his help. Seek that instruction. The Lord will provide it. He is faithful. There's a reason why we do what we do. We may not want to talk about it. My wife uh, shared a story with me about her older sister. It was at the age of 13. She was calculating her birth date in comparison with her parents' wedding date. And she suggested that it didn't work out quite right. Man, did she ever get in a lot of trouble? <laughs> That's pretty terrible, you know? So the family of Esau is being actively intermarried with the family of the Horites of Mount Seir. A couple of things that are interesting about that. One, how likely is Esau to hold his sons accountable concerning the issue of who they marry or who they don't marry? Considering his history, where he's coming from. You know, yeah, I remember my dad, you know, he just kind of gave me a bad time about being married to these people. You know, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be gracious. You know what? Do yourself a favor. Don't be more gracious than God. It's not a good practice. Two, how likely is Esau to hold his family to account concerning the worship of foreign gods and idolatry? Not very, not very likely at all that he is going to look down at anything that they do or don't do in that regard. Why? Because he doesn't have, as far as we can tell, any kind of a relationship with God whatsoever. Does he know what a relationship with God is? Probably. Probably he does. He's seen it up close. He saw it in his father. 
He may have even recognized it in his brother. The family of Esau, a very, very large family by this time. They're headed to Mount Seir. They have some understanding with the family of Seir. No idea. We don't have any idea what that understanding is. But we do have this, this verse in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 12. Listen to what it says. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So what does that tell you? It tells you that Esau intermarried, moved in, and cleaned house. They took those people out. So what it appears to be is that there's, there's some level of deception here. Because in Genesis 36, we don't have any indication that he's moving with evil intentions toward these people in Mount Seir. But they go in there and they wipe those people out. They wipe them out. Because Esau is not really the focal point. The point that he's being divorced from the commonwealth of the promise of God. We don't get the kind of detailed account of the transition, the takeover as we do with the takeover of the seven nations of Canaan in the book of Joshua. Nonetheless, the thing started cooperatively and ended at some time pretty quickly as a military campaign. And I say pretty quickly because 400 years later, at the time of the Exodus, the nation of Edom was very well established. The kings of Edom, verses 31 through 39, we have this listing of particular kings that reigned in Edom. Verse 31, now these were the kings who reigned over the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Denebach. The, and when he, Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham, the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. When Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samla of Maris, Maris, Maric? Anyway, it's, it's right there, read it. Reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Balhanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And when Balhanan, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Pau. His wife's name was Methabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Meziah. Most scholars, most Bible scholars, do not date this list as contemporary with this time in Genesis. Scholars like to attribute this to a later editorial addition, which it could be, because it mentions Basra in here as well. Uh, we have a list that is almost totally identical, word for word, to this list in First Chronicles chapter 1, if you look which is going to be a much later compilation, okay? There are a couple of names here that are a little bit interesting to us. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinabah. Now this, if this were the time of the Exodus, okay, 400 years later than Genesis, when the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, all right? If this were the time of the Exodus, uh, 400 years removed at Mount Seir, then this Beor could be the father of Balaam the son of Beor. Uh, Numbers 22.5, uh, he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, 
which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people to call him saying, look, a people have come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth sitting next to him. He wanted, again, Balaam to prophesy against the children of Israel. We don't know, but it would give us a little insight into the relationship of the Lord as Balaam being a prophet, having descended from the families of Edom and Esau at that time, even if he was a compromiser, and he was. Another interesting name here is, uh, and when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Basra reigned in his place. Some commentators would like to speculate that Joab is Job of the book of Job. Uh, the timing is not terrible because we know that uh, the book of Job essentially took place before the law of Moses because of the way that it's written and the things that are in it. Uh, the location is right. Still doesn't mean this guy Jobab is Job. So it's an interesting, it's just another interesting name. Um, in verse 35, when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. This guy seems to be the descendant of a particular Edomite king that opposes uh, Solomon in 1 Kings. Actually, his name is passed down to um, an Edomite king that opposes Solomon in 1 Kings. And then the name kind of makes its way to Syria, and Ben-Hadad, that is the son of Hadad. Uh, the last interesting thing about this list, and I, I don't know if you picked this up as I read it, there's no family succession. All these kings are not related to each other. And in fact, they all live in different places. And it's almost like uh, these kings are all totally unrelated, which raises the question, it actually raises more questions than it answers, how did the succession take place? Were they elected? Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. I hope not. Was it a military prowess that one followed the next? Because they're not related by family and they're coming from different places, but they're all the kings of Edom. Were they just single monarch dynasties and it was a revolution after revolution? We don't know. So this, this section really leaves us with all kinds of question marks. We know for certain that the life of the royal families of Edom, they are all parts of the royal families, and their lives were violent and they were chaotic. In the Old Testament, there are 55 verses in the Old Testament from seven different books that prophesy to speak of the destruction of Edom, mostly as a retribution because of their mistreatment of Israel. There are many prophecies concerning the destruction of Edom. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, uh, Obadiah, and Malachi all talk, in fact, Whole book, whole chapter of Obadiah is all about the destruction of Edom. All the rest of those prophecies cover the issue in great detail. Finally, the tribes of Edom geographically in verses 40 through 43. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their families and their places. Now, again, to us, this is kind of meaningless because we don't know where the place names line up with Mount Seir accordingly. Their names were Chief Temna, Chief Ava, Chief Jareth, Jethith, uh, Chief Aholibama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kinaz, Chief Timon, Chief Mibar, Mibzar, Chief Megdil, Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. Doesn't give us any, anything, really, because it's the same names of these guys who were chiefs in previously the children of Esau, but because we don't know their, their location. Following the relocation of Mount Seir, the second and third generation of the children of Esau established themselves in Edom. 
Mount Seir. And at that point, their individual cities or districts were identified by the chief individual who was there, the people of Esau's descent. Again, we have no idea because of the places. We don't know where the places are. Most of them are in modern Jordan, uh, an ancient city. The capital is Basra. And unfortunately, because Muslims are never too favorable toward archaeological excavation, as it offers very little in support of their agenda, they don't like it, and so they don't do it. And so if there is information in the city of Basra and other places in Edom that we might learn more about this, this family, we're not going to see it anytime in the near future because Jordan is Islamic nation. Conflict between Jacob and Esau started before they were born. While they were still in their mother's womb, they were fighting, and it freaked her out of her mind. She goes, if everything is good, why am I like this? And she got a word from God that told her, there's two nations at war in your body, and the elder shall serve the younger. That's the instruction that she received from the Lord, the word of God. Um, It continued, it had a brief recess while... Esau, or rather, while Jacob went to Syria and stayed with his his father-in-law Laban, who used to be his uncle. And uh, then again, when he goes down to Egypt, 400 years of peace between Jacob and Esau for 400 years. But again, at the time of the Exodus, it picks up pretty substantially. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, saying, Thus says the Lord, or rather, thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt. We dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice. He sent an angel and brought us up out of Egypt, and we were taken to Kedesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through your fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from the wells. We will go all along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or the left. Until we have passed through your territory. And Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said, Well, we will go in by the king's highway. Uh, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. Only, only let us pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men, with a strong hand. And thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory as he was turned away. The time of David, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14. David put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Second Chronicles, Amaziah, Uzziah, the king, the same thing. In fact, terrible, you know, uh, Second Chronicles uh, 25 and verse 12, also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive and brought them to the top of the rock, cast them down from the top of the rock so that they were dashed in pieces. Pretty crazy. Second Kings chapter 8, the days of Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. And in Second Chronicles, at the end of the book, chapter 28, again the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and they carried away captives. It's getting close to the destruction of the nation of Judah in Second Chronicles 28. God allows men ample time to turn their hearts to the truth, folks. Does he not? You ever been in a situation where God did not warn you before he brought consequences upon your life or where you were unclear as to what was going on? You know, I mean, I, well, I, I've been unclear about what's going on, but the Lord is able 
as we seek him to make things clear. Esau and Edom is a symbol throughout the scripture of the flesh. And when I say flesh, I don't mean skin and and I mean the carnal, rebellious nature of the human being, which we each and every one of us have. We all have this carnal nature. And you know, you know what's, what works, what the enemy tries to use against you. You know what he's trying to use, trying to convince you of X, Y, and Z. And the, his whole purpose in trying to convince you of X, Y, and Z is to separate you from the mind of Christ, to get you to lose confidence in God's ability, to get you to a point where you no longer are able to hold fast to the truth that God has given you, to have that high view of the word of God, that God is faithful, that he's able, that he works powerfully on behalf of his servants. That rebellious nature. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says, those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is The enemy, it is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We are in debt, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is what we want to do. We want to put to death the deeds of the flesh. One day at a time. To hand ourselves over. To put on the mind of Christ. To let our our lives instruct others by what we do and what we say and how we think. Can we say that God has duly warned the culture of this world? I think we can. I think he has. How about the individuals of this world? We can consider ourselves warned. God is faithful. We want to walk in the Spirit. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to learn from the examples of people who allow little compromises to erode the truth of who God is and the impact that he can make upon us every single day. We need to encourage ourselves in a high view of scripture so that we have confidence in the word of God, that it is able, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It is able to affect the lives of men and women. God, give us wisdom. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us tonight. We thank you for the lives of these people that you worked in so powerfully. And, Lord, just the truth that you have revealed to us. Lord, you speak to us through the word. Help us. Strengthen us. Father, there are challenges before us in these last days. But, Lord, you believe that we're capable and competent 
Father, you have called us to this ministry to serve you, to bless our families, to care for one another, and Lord, to gird up the loins of our minds, to set our hope fully upon the grace to be revealed at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Lord, you guide us, bless us, and strengthen our hearts in the truth. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys.